0: This podcast is made possible in part by The Low Countries Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program.
1: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is David Shields, who is the Carolina Distinguished Professor of the English Language and Literature at USC, and on the line from Charleston, Kevin Mitchell, who is the Chief Instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston. And so, gentlemen, both of you, welcome to the journal. Glad to be here, Walter. We're going to talk today about uh, your latest book. It's entitled Taste the State. South Carolina's signature foods, recipes, and their stories. And first of all, gentlemen, I'll start with you, David, and then bring in Kevin. How did this joint venture come about?
2: Well, um, I got contacted by the University of South Carolina Press uh, a few years ago. And the chief of the press said, uh, I'd like to do a book about the top 10 dishes from South Carolina. This sounded too much like a YouTube venture for me. So I said, I'm not interested. And then he said, well, we're really interested in doing a South Carolina food book. What would it take for such a thing to come into existence? And I said, it'd have to go in depth. That is not 10, but most of the really important signature items. And I would have to have a collaborator. Someone who is a culinary professional and someone who is conversant with uh, African American Gullah Geechee culinary history. And I'd been working with Kevin for years. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and we collaborated in a number of projects, and he can tell you about some of those.
1: All right, Kevin, it's, it's, it's to you. And what are some of the things you and uh, David had been collaborating on before you got together with this book?
0: Well, we, we met back in 2013, 2014, when uh, Charleston hosted the uh, Carolina Gold Rice Foundation's uh, Rice Symposium. I was asked to, to do a demo on uh, Chicken Bog, and I met David at this symposium, at this demo. And then we reconnected again in Charleston, I believe, in 2014 again. Um, With the American Culinary Federation, they had their Southeast Regional Conference here in in Charleston. And Dave and I reconnected and he told me the story of Nat Fuller, who was one of the great black caterers from Charleston in the early to late 1800s. And he proposed this idea that we would recreate a dinner that he held here in Charleston shortly after the Civil War, um, to celebrate the end of the Civil War, celebrate um, blacks and whites in the spirit of reconciliation and, and equality. So that was our first project together. Um, and then we moved through later on in 2015, uh, where we did a field pea tasting, where we revitalized the, the work of uh, George Washington Carver as it relates to the field pea. Between 2016 to 2018, I left the state of South Carolina, went off to get my graduate degree at the University of Mississippi, and David and I kept in contact during that two-year span. And when upon my return to Charleston, David approached me with this idea of the two of us writing a book together.
1: David said, "At first, it's not the top ten foodstuffs, which is what Richard Brown from the press wanted, yeah. uh, but it is yeah. South Carolina from asparagus to waffles, uh, That's right. not quite A to Z. Yeah. Uh, and you have the recipes, but this is not a cookbook per se, although
2: people could use the recipes, right, David? Oh, they could. Um, we've uh, tended to reproduce the most historic sort of classic recipes, which are not in modern recipe format. They don't lay out the ingredients ahead of time. It's sort of like a paragraph. So you have to have some conversance with cooking technique to to uncode those. But Kevin Mitchell supplied some updates of the tradition, and those are in the modern form. Well, it you know, it, it just seems like having
1: a little bit of familiarity, not anything like y'all, with with older uh, recipe, but receipt books, the ingredients sort of pop up as you do them. It just says you start off with potatoes and then the eggs come in or whatever. I mean, it's sort of cooking the way it used to be done. I asked my dear wife who can make beautiful pie crusts, and she said she was taught by her family cook who told her you can either do pie crusts or you can do biscuits, no good cook can do the same. You have, to, you have to have a talent for one. And she doesn't use any recipes. She just does the way she taught. And then she just,
2: the way the dough feels, and then she knows it's ready. You know, that's, that's interesting. In the 19th century, the great chefs of America, uh, the people who were operating in Delmonico's and other things, um, did not write down their recipes Uh, And you were apprenticed in a kitchen by examining the chef doing things. It wasn't until the 1880s that Charles Ronhofer puts out the first recipe book which reveals what professional culinarians are doing in the kitchen. Most of the recipe uh, books that have been produced up until this point are for household cooks or for people learning Now, there
1: there clearly were recipe books or cookbooks prior to the 1880s. You know, the Carolina housewife, the Virginia housewife. I mean, this goes back to the
2: 18th century. Yeah, the, the 1790s. And what you'll notice is that all of those early cookbooks are designed for usually orphaned young girls who are training to be household cooks. And you'll have these prefaces about them. Now, the uh, Southern uh, cookbooks, The Carolina Housewife, The Kentucky Housewife, and, and the Virginia, Mary Randolph's book, are similarly a guide to sort of home cooks who presume to be female, not professional culinarians. And it's household cooking, home cooking, rather than the cooking that you have in public. Given
1: literacy skills back in those days, they're producing these cookbooks. But I'm thinking in South Carolina, those who were using uh, the Carolina Housewife. The Carolina Housewife wasn't doing the cooking herself. She was directing somebody else how to
2: do it. Right. And and what's interesting about that is that, you know, when we take a look at—and Kevin knows this. He wrote his MA thesis in Mississippi on this. There were situations where you would have a free African-American woman confectioner, Sally Seymour, Eliza Seymour Lee, and the various town people would sign over their uh, enslaved cooks to Sally Seymour, and Sally Seymour would educate these cooks by apprenticing them in their kitchen. She wrote down her recipes because a number of them survive in commonplace books. So there is a literacy dimension that is going, sort of crossing through literate, free African-Americans to uh, enslaved. You early on mention in the book that the taste of the state,
1: if you're talking about South Carolina, there are three cultures that come together in South Carolina cuisine. We're talking about European, which by the way, there are about eight or different nine ethnicities involved there, Mm -hmm. uh, West African and Native American. And frequently the Native, until actually fairly recently, Native American influence, as important as it was, has been left out. Although I can tell you from having read the inventories, among the first references to an enslaved person in the kitchen were Native American women. Kevin, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about, first of all, the West African influence in the actual foodstuffs, whether we're talking about Benny seeds or uh, Guinea squash or what have you. Uh, and then we'll get into preparation a little bit later. The Af- West African influence was considerable, was it not?
0: Yes. And I mean, you mentioned a couple of, of ingredients. You know uh, Benet plays a very important role in the influence of southern food from those cooks um, of course you have to you have to talk about rice specifically Carolina gold rice you have to talk about things like okra and watermelon and so many other ingredients that were grown cultivated brought over by you know the the enslaved African in cooking those particular ingredients, not only for other enslaved people, but for their slave owners as well.
1: We mentioned guinea squash. We talk about eggplant, Uh, but the variety that was used in South Carolina and preferred in South Carolina wasn't that big purple thing that we see in the grocery stores today. What was it like?
0: Yeah, exactly. They were a little bit smaller. They were a lot, i say, you know, as far as texture, uh, really tender, the skin... Probably could have been a lot, a little bit thinner than, you know, the big purple globe or whatever, a plant that plays heavily in today's time. Um, that squash back then, of course, would have been, once again, smaller. It would have been many different varieties. It probably would have been a different color. It may not have been that, that deep, dark purple, uh, once again, that we look at or think about when we talk about the skinny any squash that people eat Kevin, I think he's
2: also thinking about the uh, red Solanum athiopicum, uh, the one that looks like a tomato that that got lost. But one thing that
1: they all had in common is they were bitter. A colleague from off moved to South Carolina and his wife bought some eggplant and she cooked it for dinner and didn't soak it before. Uh, Being polite, as we were, my wife and I did eat
2: one slice each, but it was it was most unpleasant. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, do you salt your eggplant slices before you process them?
0: I do, and that was basically you know a technique, of course, that I learned um, in culinary school. And I'll be quite honest with you, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of eggplant, <laughs> uh, and I and I'm not really sure why. I think maybe for me it's a it's a texture thing. But when I do use it here with my students or even sometimes at home, I definitely salt it to, for one, of course, it it helps release a lot of the the natural moisture and water that's in that eggplant. And also, it does kind of tame down some of the bitterness of it as well.
1: Yeah. And, of course, the method that it was used for cooking it, even in the 19th century, was the traditional West
2: African method of frying it. Mm Mm-hmm. The Brazilians still keep their little red eggplant, uh, they call them gilos, and they're our favorite bar food, sliced and cooked up with onions. So if you go to a bar in Rio uh, during soccer season, this is what you'll be served as uh, one of the things. It, it, instead of the big jar of pickled eggs. That's right.
1: <laughs> or pickled egg feet. <laughs> Uh, Now, a a historical footnote, and David, I know that you are really engaged in helping to reintroduce heritage fruits and vegetables into South Carolina, and that is the guinea squash, this colonial vegetable, died out and the last seeds were destroyed in a fire in Louisiana. So the ones that are grown now that look like the 18th and 19th century guinea squash really came in from Brazil. That's
2: right. Exactly. And... uh, it was a shame of uh, the line of red guinea squash that survived, uh, was collected from an African American farmer in Natchez, and um, seed savers had it at this one place in Louisiana, and some drunk character burned up the seed house. Oh, gosh. And uh, lost, we, we lost that one. And what's important about it, you know, you can bring in the Brazilian seed, but the that seed that had been handed down in Natchez is is locally adapted to the southeast. And when you plant a a seed from West Africa or Europe, uh, it undergoes transformations in the soil and different climate. Uh, The epigenetics trigger different sorts of manifestations. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason we have a lot of different varieties of collards Uh, People who tried to save seed from European heading cabbages found that they wouldn't head in the South. They just formed flat leaves. And so the category of cabbage collards all have heading cabbages as ancestors.
1: Well, there's a common misperception that collards were introduced from West Africa, and that's not the case. It was a European vegetable, which very quickly became very popular with all segments of the Southern community, but especially in the African-American community. It
2: was nutritious, and it was inexpensive. Right. Kevin, who wrote up the thing on collards, perhaps uh, you want to comment on it.
0: You know, the collards, as you said, definitely played very well in the kind of the canon of food that African-Americans eat. Um, I mean, then and even today. And, you know, we talk about one of the first varieties of collars in the book it's called it's called the blue stamp collar that kind of developed a little bit after this after the Civil War where this green is as you said once again very nutritious and what happens is we write about collars but we also write it in conjunction with um, pot liquor right mm. and, and how the pot liquor left over from this beautiful pot of cooked greens, which would be given to enslaved people after the flavors would only eat the greens without really them understanding that that was the most nutritious part of of the green, the liquor that that you actually cooked those greens in. So, you know, you go through this kind of this thing where you are looking at these different types you know, then, of course, after you're looking at, you know, mustards and, you know, turnip greens and, you know, even beet greens, which all are um, somewhat bitter. But, you know, in, in the cooking, we we do things to kind of take away some of that bitterness. Like for what I do when I work with mustards, for example, I will kind of blanch and shock them, you know, kind of drop them in some boiling water for about a minute or so and then drop them in some ice water um, to stop the cooking process. But in that boiling water, along with salt, I do add a little bit of baking soda, in, and that kind of tails back that that bitterness. And then I also uh, combat that as well. I'll throw in a little bit of elderflower honey at the end to, once again, offset that bitterness.
1: Well, now, you didn't mention put putting any salt meat in with your collards or your greens?
0: I, I do. It depends on my mood. At, at home, we're not necessarily using ham hock. I mean, we are using a smoked product. We use uh, smoked turkey tails or smoked turkey necks. You know, my, my fiancé, she doesn't eat pork, so we have to find that, that substitute. But I don't necessarily use, like, salt pork. Um, I will use bacon in that recipe with the mustard beans, you know, it's caramelized onions with this rendered bacon, the rendered bacon fat, and then for a little spice, some red pe- pepper flake, and then just slowly toss the greens <clears throat> in with that just long enough so they warm through. So when I deal with greens, I'm not cooking them in a pot with water and, and ham hot for hours upon hours. Uh, for me, I believe it. It cooks out all the nutritional value in those grains. So it's onion, rendered bacon, bacon fat, lightly tossed with red pepper flake, a little salt. And then, you know, I like to also be a little daring, and I add a little bit of bourbon um, to to my pot of greens as well.
1: Well, now I'm going to remember that at New Year's. Growing up on the Gulf Coast, we always had andouille sausage in our collards, uh, which, of yep. course— which is, yep. makes it nice and hot. And at an early age, my grandfather introduced me to the pot liquor. No matter what the green, whether it was turnips or collards, he didn't really care for mustards. He always insisted that the pot liquor, he had it always. We had cornbread. And then he he said, yep. this is what you learn to, to drink. And I can remember that the ladies of the household didn't want pot liquor. I mean, it just... I guess maybe when it's cooked with uh, salt meat, it is is a little bit oily, but it's still, it's good. I still love it.
0: Well, my grandmother grew up in, you know, I I grew up in the North, so I'm from off, as you would say. But my grandmother grew up in in North Carolina, and she was famous for um, sitting down with a bowl of pot liquor and a huge chunk of cornbread (laughs) and would dip her cornbread in this potlicker and just sit there and eat it bowls and bowls, you know, at a time. She would also do that with, um, she would dip her uh, cornbread in a bowl of buttermilk Well, as well. <laughs> All, right.
1: All right, Kevin, you're talking about your grandmother and cornbread, and that that's a nice segue into cornbread in South Carolina. And
2: historically, David, where did that come from? Cornbread derives from, from Native American food ways, They had a boiled cornmeal and water and duck fat salt preparation of fried cornbread that numbers of people, the Lumbee, the Catawba, uh, practiced. What's interesting about the South Carolina tradition of cornbread was that uh, originally it had only used white flint corn, the idea of having yellow cornbread was unthinkable until the 20th century.
1: Okay. I was going to say, I grew up mid-20th century, and the cornbread was all yellow.
2: What happened was the uh, national dominion of Midwest yellow dent corn, when the huge suppliers and growers of corn sent their uh, cornmeal out to the grocery chain's. All across the United States, they sent the Midwest yellow, and it supplanted the preferred white corns that were used in the South. In many instances, your first packaged cornbread mixes were using this commodity corn.
1: Well, or places like Anson Mills and what used to be Geechee Boy. Uh, Marsh now. Yeah, you know, down on, on, on Edisto. Are they producing? They produce a white corn meal, do they not?
2: They do, and uh, in the case of uh, Anson Mills, we found the original Sea Island white Flint corn that it survived. Ted Tuning had some. It survives also in Florida, uh, and um, Glenn Roberts brought the crop back, so you can have white Flint grits and and white. Uh, cornbread if you use their product and a number of other mills uh, are using other types of white dent corn like Cox Prolific and, uh, and Hickory King which is another famous one and there's a kind of flinty chewiness to it you know when you think about what differentiates southern food from American food there are a couple things you think of immediately instead of the cow, it's the pig uh, instead of uh, wheat bread, it's corn bread. And South Carolina, you can do further differentiations. Corn bread also had a rival, and that's rice bread. And rice bread was universal, at least in the Low Country, until the 1920s. It was on every table at every meal. All right, well, what did rice bread look like? Was it like corn bread? Uh, it was in loaf form. And it was a mixture of wheat and rice. It was a four-to-one, four parts wheat and one part boiled rice. Okay, so it's actually the rice, not not a rice flour. It actually included rice. But rice flour was uh, later on incorporated. And it's interesting, you know, rice flour doesn't become... A major part of South Carolina cooking until about the Civil War era. And it, it has to do with mill technology, getting the rice so fine that you can make a creme de riz out of it. And uh, that's the absolute best sort of base for a sauce that you would want. Uh, it's great batter if you want to fry fish in it and don't want to have that crunchy cornmeal. Beer and uh, rice flour, that's the basis of tempura batter in Japan, and it was the basis for a lot of frying that went on here and, and still does to a certain extent. All right, gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and
1: let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Kevin Mitchell and David Shields about their latest book, Taste the State, South Carolina's Signature Foods, Recipes, and Their Stories. Kevin, before we identified ourselves, we were talking about cornbread. Do you make cornbread that has sugar in it?
0: I am definitely team sweet cornbread. And that's mainly because that's how I grew up. My grandmother always made sweet cornbread. The only time I do not eat sweet cornbread is if I'm having a bowl of chili. Um, I will not, but... She always used cornbread in her in her stuffing for turkey for you know for the holidays and was always sweet cornbread.
1: There's one more corn food that of course that has been a key part of South Carolina recipes and meals for three centuries now, more than three centuries, and that is hominy and it's many variations. And David, let's start off talking about Some people say hominy when they're really talking about grits, and some people will call grits hominy, and it's not, but they're all different.
2: Right. Well, originally, uh, hominy is nixtamalized corn, and that means it was processed with lye. Uh, They used the ash of usually hickory. Uh, And Native Americans did this uh, as a, a general practice in corn preparation because By some experience of many generations, they realized that consuming it made them healthier. And It was only in the late 19th, early 20th century that we realized that uh, that corn, uh, if you have an all-corn diet, uh, there's something in corn that does not permit the niacin in the corn to be uptaken in the human body and a niacin deficiency disease arose called pellagra throughout the South. But if you nixtamalize it, a chemical reaction occurs which allows the niacin in the corn to be taken up. And so the Native Americans, they didn't know it was niacin, but they realized that ash treating the corn made it healthier for them to consume. Now, settlers took this over, and they had two varieties that they made— whole corn kernels called big hominy and what's now called pozole and the sort of national. It looks, it looks like popcorn. Yes, big, big kernels <laughs> with the, the husk stripped off. And then there was a small hominy, which was milled, lye treated corn. Now, most early 19th century grits were made from nixtamalized corn. They became hominy grits. But in the, about the 1870s, 1880s, millers, particularly in upstate, decided that you really didn't need to ash. You just dry the corn down and grind it. And so grits that aren't hominy uh, got out there. And uh, I would say the majority of the grits that you have now is just dried corn that's been milled. You have David. You have
1: or whoever wrote the one on grits has some pretty harsh words about a lot of the glop that is served in restaurants today. And I got to find that quotation. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I'm afraid I'm not a uh, fan of library paste uh, when it comes to uh, the grits. Um, and part of it was the Insta grits revolution. Sometimes there are revolutions that just shouldn't have been. <laughs>
0: What's interesting? Uh, last night we were out to dinner, and my fiance had a dish uh, was called well fish and grits. Um, some fried flounder served over on top of some grits, and they were this huge glob of you know of course ground cornmeal, but it was very. It was almost like it was molded into a block, <laughs> and it was not. Of the consistency of of which, you know, we, you know, we really come to know, you know, a really nice pot of hot grits, what it should be. And, you know, David makes that point really well, you know, going out to dinner or going to restaurants, period, and having like shrimp and grits or, you know, or something, you know, with grits, you know, we get very critical about (laughs) how those grits are cooked and how they're presented.
2: Yes, one of the reasons why heirloom corn has come back with a vengeance is people realize that certain corn varieties are out there that have more flavor than modern agronomic corn. And uh, if you're making your grits, whether they're instant or even stone milled with bad-tasting corn, you're just uh, doomed to failure from the start. Well,
1: having grown up having to... And I mean having to have grits every morning, winter or summer. Anything could be served with it. Fried fish, it was usually bacon, occasionally sausage. Doves were very nice in in season, but you had to have grits and you could not put any sugar on it. It's salt and pepper and butter, nothing else.
2: What's interesting, what you're describing is, is actually the sort of attitude that lots of South Carolinians had toward rice. Uh, you could cook virtually anything in rice and make a pilau or a perlu or a pilaf. I mean, there are all sorts of names for it. It was the universal donor cooked grain and an incredibly broad repertoire of dishes developed as a result of that. And, and it's still probably the single most elaborate Sector of South Carolina cooking. Well,
1: Dinner was in the middle of the day back in the nineteen forties and fifties. Still, and rice was always on the menu. It was always there, usually with gravy.
2: That's interesting, um, Kevin. What when we were going through these various pilau recipes, were there Hop and John, of course, and and uh, yeah. you know, red rice. But what were some of the other ones that sort of hit your fancy?
0: Oh yeah, there were. There are quite a few. Um, well, for me, dove the dove perlu, and then there's one in here that we do the recipe for fish kedguri
2: kedguri yeah.
0: It's yes, um, and actually, you know, I actually had to go and kind of look look that up. And I, of course, I went to the Anson Mills website and they have a recipe for it, which was really you know really interesting to me. You know, here we have recipe for egg. An egg perloo, guinea squash perloo. You know, you mentioned hop and John. You mentioned um, red rice, and then of course you have uh, limpin' and Susan. You know, was just the tomato and um, okra perloo, or even okra perloo. Or when I first moved to Charleston and did a test kitchen for um, Charlotte Jenkins' Gullah Cuisine cookbook, um, she makes a purlue that she called Gullah Rice that had chicken and had sausage. It had so many different things. But for me, it was really reminiscent of, of a jambalaya. And, you know, she she made it quite clear that <laughs> she was not making jambalaya. It was, you know, it's a purlue. But, you know, there's rabbit purlue listed here. Um, squab, which, I mean, I really, I, mean, I love squab. But, um, you know, people that go through that, Entry specifically, and that's one of the entries where we spent. I think we spend at least three, three to five, six pages on on purlieus to get people to understand. You know the the rich history that they have here, specifically in this area.
2: Yeah, one of the things that's uh, really striking is that certain ones come into fashion, and other ones go out. Uh, peanut perlu was something that was. Popular in the 19th century, but now it's crab rice, which is the hot dish in uh, the restaurant world in in South well, Carolina. I mean, it, Kevin's right. shall have
1: have at least four pages of recipes descriptions: chicken, crab, dove, duck, egg, kedgeree. Now that that has to come. That sounds like British imperial. Yes. Well,
2: y- y- from Jamaica, to, maybe I, I came through. I mean, uh, probably, uh, probably. Uh, West Indian, there, there are certain things that, that happen. For instance, in the 90s, 1790s, curry powder mm-hmm. comes in and is immediately adopted. It's one of the things from outside that gets incorporated. Like Worcestershire sauce in the mm-hmm. 1830s and 40s, it becomes a universal ingredient in southern stews. Mm-hmm. Of course, it still is. Yeah.
1: Uh, well. know, uh, I mean, and people forget how it's made. Uh, it's, very key, it's, very, it's the same family as Nook Mom from Vietnam. Right. Um, Tamarind f- fermented fish. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, uh, um, the Nook Mom factory outside Da Nang was an unforgettable smelling oh, offense. <laughs> right.
2: I guess South Carolina has its paper mills and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but obviously Hoppin' John, which most people know. But Limping Susan, I thought that was an interesting Perlow.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty classic, and uh, one of the things that Kevin said reminded me. You know, this isn't jambalaya. This is you know gulla gulla There's another Louisiana dish, gumbo, mm-hmm. but we don't do gumbo here. We do okra soup. That's oh, yeah. soup. Yeah. yeah, yes, but but having
1: having grown up on the Gulf Coast, I do a very mean gumbo. But it's it's interesting. You talk about some dishes traveling outside south carolina and they'll talk about it's charleston this and it's charleston that if you order shrimp and grits uh in virginia beach virginia they will frequently say charleston shrimp and grits it's interesting giving it giving it a cachet that
2: just being in virginia would not have <laughs> uh, that's that's sort of interesting uh, you know uh it's true that low country, and particularly Charleston food, has an inordinate dominion over people's thinking about what South Carolina food is. But one of the things we took care of was that we have the upcountry dishes, we have the Midlands dishes as well. Well, and you, you mentioned gumbo. There are a lot
1: of restaurants on, in the low country that talk about low country gumbo. Well... Anyway, we know we know where it all Category came. Category mistake. From from whence from whence it came. But if you if you talk about upcountry, you gotta have pine bark stew.
2: Yeah, pine bark uh, stew. There's a whole world of chestnut cookery that that was once real central, but the blight sort of wiped it clean. And now you only get roasted chestnuts in on the holidays and they're either Asian or European. But we well, were within a, a three or four years of the American chestnut being Available again. I mean, there are big forests in southwestern Virginia, parts plantings up near Seneca.
1: Well, they have, they have tried to, and yes, there is a chestnut society that is trying to reintroduce. Uh, it's a modified version of the American chestnut, something because the American the blight took out the the chestnuts all up and down the, the Appalachian chain.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. It isn't the culinary end of things that's driving the restoration. It's the fact that the chestnut is the fastest-growing, straightest hardwood tree known. Mm. So it's the timber industry who's behind it.
1: Well, sometimes there's a fight over who did what, and I guess maybe the fight over who created Lady Baltimore Cake uh, It's one of the— uh, <laughs> Funny, uh, silliest uh, ones. Uh, and I'm going to let you, you let, let you take Owen Wister and Lady Baltimore, David.
2: Well, actually, Kevin wrote that entry, but it's a r- really interesting story. I mean, we have a society. I think it's the Women's Exchange in Charleston. And it's this society that somehow had this recipe, which was in it what what cake was it ad- adapted from was it a a silver cake or something kevin do you remember
0: yeah um it was always called the lady baltimore cake it, i this is actually pretty interesting entry cuz as i was researching it to figure out like of course you know who what when why and how and how it kind of it's named from a a, a novel written in 1906 called lady baltimore it, it it's this the story of this man who is getting married, but he has cold feet and he goes to purchase a cake and the woman that sells him this cake <laughs> he falls in love with this woman and and that's kind of the beauty of this specific entry and what we try to do is give some really interesting um anecdotal kind of stories to some of some of the entries. So people really understand where where it comes from, but and, you know, and
2: you had two rival claimants for the proprietary control yep. of that recipe. One was well connected socially, and the other was not. But it was the non socially well connected one who was the firstus with the mostus, and was out there <laughs> and ruffled the sensibilities of. Uh, the upper-class Charleston ladies. So a kind of campaign to demean her claim to have exclusive proprietary control over the recipe was held in newspapers. And issue after issue of newspapers sort of weighed in on the question of who had the real right to make this this cake.
0: It was originally um, under the under the name of the silver cake, which seems a little bit, I guess, less elaborate, um, as opposed to, you know, what we think of the lady, the lady Baltimore cake today. And we see that how this cake gets adapted by, um, Ann Byrne burn and her American cake book in 2016. Um, but it, it's this adapted version that comes from, you know, the 200 years of Charleston cooking, um, by Blanche Rhett, who can lay claim to to this to this cake? And you know, it David makes an interesting point about where it comes from and who has you know the exclusive rights on this cake. In a broader sense, you know, we we have these conversations about who has the right to claim specific recipes or specific dishes, and what we hope to do in writing something like this and that this particular entry to give people a, a good taste of, you know, where these things come from, you know, and how some of them do have true background story and some who are just things that can just be made up kind of out of thin air. Uh,
1: and one of the reasons that Blanche got into the cooking business is her husband lost his business during the depression and she had a tea room. That's how the, fam- the Rett family was supported was on William Day's cooking and
2: Blanche running the tea room. Yeah, the, the, There was a world of tea rooms and small restaurants between the two world wars in Charleston, also in Columbia to a certain extent that's very interesting. And a fair amount of the creation of tradition goes on there. In our entry on peach leather, for instance, we see how something which is only first introduced you know like in 1921 within 4 years becomes adopted as something that is a colonial dish <laughs> uh, and part part of the mystique of of the local but w- one of the things that you discover is that there are definite histories of food and certain things that are considered signatures of a place at a certain time, a hundred years later, they're not the case. Mm-hmm. The rice bird, which was the favorite game bird of the early uh, 20th century, is now endangered and, and you can't have it. Yeah, a baba lake. Yeah, yeah. a bobble you You've got lots of other fascinating stories, but
1: one of the things that you, you do mention— that I think historically to me was significant. There are only three items that are in circulation today, in use today, that are grown today, that remain from the antebellum period that have not had their flavor bred out of them. Those are collards, Jerusalem artichokes, and okra.
2: That's right. And one of the reasons why the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation had to form was in the 1990s, this was after Alice Waters made cooking American ingredients and not French sauces. This is what American food had to be about. All these Charleston chefs started, you know, going to local farmers and getting stuff. And they prepared dishes according to the old formula. And the oldest generation of diners says, hey, the flavor's wrong. So the rice that they were using, not the right rice. The grits, wrong type of corn. <laughs> So the the chef said, where is this stuff? And that question generated the great restoration of so many of the southern ingredients that's taken place in the last two decades.
1: Well, one thing I found puzzling is the fact that ground nut cakes and candy isn't available anymore, but I just want to know why. I mean, it's not because it can't be made. Kevin, you
2: want
0: to weigh in on that? <laughs> Well, groundnut cake, yeah. Um, we know extremely, extremely popular um, in this area years ago. And you know, we, we think the outlawing of this this treat being made due to <laughs> the the high attraction of flies. You see in in that entry the photo of the woman holding this tray of groundnut cake and maybe other candies and uh, in one hand and having a fly swatter <laughs> in our other hand, uh, because, of course, the sugar attracted flies. And I think the outlawing of it, of it being sold at open market could have discouraged people from making it. And, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's really not a difficult thing to prepare. And David and I have had numerous conversations looking to see Who's going to be inspired <laughs> to to bring these back? And I actually to
2: List the ingredients uh, so people out in the listening audience who might be tempted uh, to to create the great signature candy of South Carolina, which has disappeared, uh, can have an idea of what they're going to have to do.
0: <laughs> it's, I mean, very simple peanuts. You know, if you're wanting to look at a recipe from the late 1840s you know, in the Carolina housewife, it's peanuts, it's um, a little bit of brandy, it's eggs, sugar, butter, and that is it. <laughs> Those are, which agrees that, of course, that we can find throughout today. Yeah. Um, you want to be more historic, you want to Try to get your hands on the African runner peanut to to make it. And unfortunately, you know we have someone, Nat Bradford, who has those those peanuts, and I've used them recently in in, in my class. So this is once again not a very hard thing to make. It, the ingredients are prevalently found. So we we hope that anyone that's out there, you know, pick up this book and and look at these these old recipes and. Let's let's bring this thing back.
1: Hey, the same thing is true of, of benny seed candy, not benny seed wafers, but benny seed candy. I mean, it's, they're simple to make. You know,
2: um, benny candy. Um, Chef B J Dennis has been. He and I went down to Trinidad a number of years ago, and we saw some of those old traditional candies still being made of benny. A benne roll and uh, monkey meat. The uh, molasses and coconut candy that was sold here in in South Carolina is still being sold in little balls on the streets of uh, the towns in in Trinidad. Fellas, the most
1: interesting vegetable in the whole group that I had never heard of was tanya root.
2: Yeah. If you were a new resident in the Low Country, your neighbors would bring a bag of these over to greet you. They're the corn. Of the elephant ear plant. Now wait a minute. Aren't they are they poisonous? As a kid, because
1: if because in Mobile, elephant ears grew to giant right. giant size, and you break them, you know the stem and the sap, it'll burn.
2: Yeah, it's it's alkaloid, but you know when you think about roots consumed the, throughout the West Indies, the taro root is uh, has the same sort of alkaloid poisons. The West African yam is uh, poisonous. People have learned to process them just like they did this root. It was baked, boiled. What does it taste like? It tastes, um, if you've ever cooked Jerusalem artichokes and mashed them, it tastes sort of like that. A little blander than a potato. It has a sort of more glossy kind of quality to it. It's usually eaten for breakfast, and it's sometimes called edos or provision plant in the West Indies. And one of the things that you have to think about is, you know, we think we got a lot of root vegetables when we have sweet potatoes, potatoes, carrots, and beets, and turnips. But if you go to a market in the West Indies today, you will find at least eight other different edible roots there, including tanya— including the West African yam called the kush, the dashin, uh, and the taro. And uh, you can uh, cook them all, and they're they're very tasty, and uh, they have a whole food ways, which we had at one time.
1: All right, gentlemen, I'm very distressed, but Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. And so uh, I'm going to go to you first, Kevin. Any last words you'd like to leave for our listeners before we sign off?
0: Yes. What for me personally what I what I hope people get from picking up this book that there's there's three things. We write about things that we know have been for years synonymous with the state of South Carolina. Second, the things that have seemed to disappear off the South Carolina food map. So like David mentioned you know, rice birds, and we talked about the groundnut cake, so on and so forth. And then the third is that they're going to be surprised with some of the the things that we write about. Um, And even for myself, getting into the book, writing the book with David, researching, some of the things that we write about were a surprise for me. So, you know, when you open the book and you go right to asparagus, I think most people are not gonna attribute South Carolina with asparagus or even oranges, so those three things, and then we also hope that you know it inspires some people for me as the chef to to get into the kitchen and and try some of these really great recipes that we put in the book, and then also that it it entertains you with some of these anecdotal stories specifically when we talk about the the Lady Baltimore cake.
2: All right, David. One of the things, too, that we should say is that um, there are a number of pan Southern dishes like fried chicken and pecan pie, and we don't include things which are just generically Southern, and we don't include things which another state has a greater claim to, like pimento cheese. But see, supposedly the best pimento burger in the world... Used to be right here. John T. Edge said so. Yes, down at the Dairy Bar. At the Dairy Bar. Yeah. <laughs> but that has to be in the Taste of the State, Georgia, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, but, you know, as to what
1: belongs, what. remember, we produce more peaches in Edgefield County than they do in the entire state of Georgia.
2: So That's why we have a peach entry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kevin Mitchell and David Shields, gentlemen... I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal and talking about your book, Taste the State, South Carolina's Signature Foods, Recipes, and Their Stories. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoy today's journal. I know that I did. Taste the State, South Carolina's Signature Foods, Recipes, and Their Stories is truly a fascinating book. Our foodways today reflect the multicultural nature of South Carolina history over more than 350 years. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter
0: Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.